On Tuesday, the Washington Post reported that North Korea successfully produced a miniaturized warhead that can fit inside its missiles. This is a major step in the country's nuclear capabilities. While American presidents have been faced with threats from North Korea for decades, this development may be the beginning of a new era in U.S.-North Korea relations. In response to the news, President Trump issued a very strong statement. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Thank you. Since he made those comments, tensions have grown between the United States and North Korea, raising alarm and questions about what happens next. This week's episode focuses on what may be the biggest can-he-do-that question of all. Can the president lead us to nuclear war? How much power is concentrated in the hands of the president when it comes to nuclear weapons? And historically, why has our relationship been so tense with North Korea that we've even reached this point? That's right. This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. We'll talk to an expert in North Korean history and a professor who's worked in past White Houses on nuclear arms control. But first, we've got White House reporter Jenna Johnson back on the show, just back from Bedminster, New Jersey, home of Trump National Golf Club. Jenna, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. So let's just talk a little bit about where we are right now. Why tensions between the U.S. and North Korea seem to have escalated so quickly over the past few days? What has happened? Yeah, so this has been building for a very, very long time. So as this news was playing out on television, I was up in the Bedminster, New Jersey area with a group of other reporters. And CNN was on the screen and a White House spokesperson was there. And we kept asking her, what's the president's response to what's going on here? So later in the day, we went to President Trump's private golf club in Bedminster, and we were there to hear about the opioid crisis. And at the very end, a reporter blurted out a question about the biggest news of the day. What did the president think of what was happening? I got to say, I don't think a lot of us were expecting what then came out of his mouth. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which this world has never seen before. Thank you. As soon as that message went out to the world, North Korea came back very quickly and threatened to go after Guam. Meanwhile, other members in Trump's administration are trying to kind of soft pedal what the president just did, kind of 
easing things and telling people that they don't need to worry about a nuclear war, just trying to lessen the pressure that the president put on. It really was remarkable that he made such a strong statement without it going through all of the vetting that such proclamations usually go through. With this, his aides have said he wanted to make a strong statement. They didn't really know what he was going to say. The actual words kind of came together as he was speaking with us. Yeah. Now, North Korea, this has been an issue for Trump since the moment that he met with Obama just after winning the election. And Obama essentially gave him the rundown on U.S.-North Korean relations and sort of said, this is mounting and this is going to get worse. Trump's then kind of been consumed by North Korea in a lot of ways. He's sent multiple tweets on it. He, In his relationship with China, he seems to bring it up often. What about Trump and what about this particular circumstance has led him to focus on it so much? Well, in a lot of ways, this is an opportunity for him to show that he's different than President Obama. Um, Which he loves to do. He (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of his biggest motivators a lot of times is just trying to outdo President Obama. And President Obama approached North Korea with great caution. President Trump gets in there with a very different style. This is an opportunity for him to show strength to show that he's not afraid to talk tough, that he's not going to tiptoe around things. What about the argument that some people are offering that says that this kind of language that Trump uses is the language that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un responds to? This is what he needs to hear. What, what do we make of that? Yeah, well, that's the argument that uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has been making, that uh this is a different kind of situation than we've seen in the past and that it takes a different kind of vocabulary. Um, while a lot of people in Trump's administration didn't know exactly what he was going to say at Bedminster, they knew that he was going to talk tough, that there is a strategy here to make their language more aggressive, to take that stronger vocal stance And while they may not have known what the words were going to be, this is part of a strategy to put pressure not just on North Korea, but on China and on other players in the region. How much of Trump's reaction with such strong words was a reaction of his to the fact that he managed to get the U.N. Security Council to vote unanimously to pass these North Korean sanctions, something he was really proud of? We got a 15 to nothing vote. I have great respect for China and Russia, what they did on sanctions. I believe that will have an effect. I don't think it will have the kind of effect, even though I was the one, we were the ones that got it. And Nikki Haley did a great job. We all did a great job. Yet he felt like he did not get the accolades for doing that, that he thought he would. So then he turns to this alarmist rhetoric. Do do we think that there's a connection there? I mean, arguably... The U.N. resolution is the biggest success story when it comes to foreign policy and this administration so far. This was a major victory for him and for Nikki Haley. And it got some attention, but not nearly as much attention as all of this other news has gotten. And so he's an entertainer. He knows what he needs to do to get people talking more about the issues that he wants them to be talking about. 
So this is where we find ourselves today, with President Trump facing very difficult foreign policy decisions. But how did we get here with North Korea? Why is our relationship so adversarial, and what have other presidents done to try to calm these tensions? Jonathan Pollack is affiliated with the Center for East Asia Policy Studies and the John L. Thornton China Center. He's also author of the book, No Exit, North Korea, Nuclear Weapons, and International Security. Jonathan explains our country's tumultuous history with North Korea. Here's Jonathan. Let's start with the most fundamental question here, which is why does North Korea hate the United States to begin with? North Korean students are taught to hate Americans in schools from a very young age. Why, broadly speaking, is this the case? Well, uh, North Korea is America's longest running adversary in the international system. We've never really had a truly normal, even semi-normal relationship with North Korea. But it seems to be so embedded in how they look at the world and look at their options. It's almost as if having enemies legitimates North Korea, because if they didn't have enemies, they might have to look much more at the price that they have paid for sustaining this extraordinarily adversarial stance now for the better part of uh, 70 years. And some of the animosity towards Americans emerged from what went on during the Korean War, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a it was a brutal war. North Korea, for all intents and purposes, was flattened and leveled in bombardments during the war. So there are not a lot of, uh, shall we say, uh, good memories about all of that. Add to this, and we have to acknowledge this, given North Korea's uh, determination to acquire nuclear weapons, but the United States, of course, deployed significant nuclear weapons on the peninsula, first beginning in about 1957. They were there through the entirety of the 1960s and 1970s, began to thin out somewhat at that point as we wondered whether it was such a good idea to have a lot of nuclear weapons there. And it was finally under George H.W. Bush that all the remaining nuclear weapons were withdrawn from South Korea in 1991. How have past American presidents tried to solve this problem, tried to strike deals with North Korea? I think we can look specifically at the actions of Bill Clinton. He made a deal with North Korea. What did that look like? Well, that was a deal to focus very, very much on what was then an emergent nuclear weapons program in the North. There seemed to be the possibility of a genuine breakdown about to occur in what was often called the first U.S.-Korean nuclear crisis, that was a point at which the U.S. came to an agreement with North Korea, in which Kim Il-sung was very involved, that in effect obligated North Korea to forego its nuclear weapons development. The U.S. agreed to basically fulfill, at least on paper, that we would build replacement nuclear reactors for the North. Those reactors were never built. There are many reasons why they were not, but that at least during much of the 1990s had us on a more productive path with the North Koreans. The problem was that apart from the agreed framework, which was addressing a plutonium-based nuclear weapons program, the North Koreans were covertly pursuing an enriched uranium program, which was totally uncovered in the agreed framework. And the the North Koreans are sticklers for what the details are in various agreements. So if they never agreed that they would forego other things, then they felt 
you know, that they could go ahead and pursue them. And that's exactly what they did. And that led ultimately to the collapse of the Greek framework uh, early in the George W. Bush administration. So that's essentially how North Korea was able to build its nuclear program through uranium, right? Well, both through uranium and plutonium, because what they did after the um, the breakdown of the agreed framework, they they reopened the reactor. They they started all over again. So the agreed framework that fell apart under George W. Bush, and then Obama came into office, and his strategy with North Korea was called strategic patience. How did that approach contribute to where we find ourselves today? Well, Obama tried uh, very very early in his presidency or even at the time of his inaugural, you may remember he said, but that we will extend a hand if you are willing to unclench your fist. To the people of poor nations. And that was directed at Iran. It was directed at Cuba. Uh, it was directed at, uh, at other adversaries, including North Korea. The problem was, is that literally at the time that Obama entered office, the North Koreans were already planning another long-range rocket test and then subsequently a second nuclear test. So they very quickly were in effect saying to Obama, we're not interested in reviving an old agreement. Obama made efforts. There was an agreement signed with North Korea that looked very, very promising on Leap Day in 2012. But that agreement came unglued in a matter of two or three weeks. So there were other efforts under Obama to explore the possibilities of relations with the North. They made no headway. His issue with North Korea was that he saw North Korea as a rule breaker. We knew he believed very keenly in institutions and in norms. He saw them as the only country in the world ever to withdraw from the nonproliferation treaty, which they did twice. He saw them as the only country in the world to test nuclear weapons in the, in the 21st century. And I think he must have made a decision at some point that, you know, I'm just not going to chase after these guys. But what I think happened ultimately in the latter years of Obama's presidency is it became clear that North Korea had really decided to accelerate its activities in these areas. And they did much better than many people, myself included, would have considered possible. So that's why when Obama met with Trump two days after Trump's election, he told Trump, this issue, North Korea, is going to occupy a lot more of your time and attention than you can imagine. So given all of that, how much of what we're seeing now, the escalation over the past few days, can be attributed to Trump specifically, or was it just kind of an inevitability given what's been going on between the U.S. and North Korea over the past few decades? My quick answer would be that Trump has provoked it even more in the sense by very, very angry words, but you still have real ballast coming from, particularly from Secretary Mattis and from Secretary Tillerson, who do not see us on the edge of conflict. They're trying to send messages of reassurance, both to the people of the United States, but as well to our allies in the Pacific. But I think Trump is giving voice to his own frustrations in having to deal with this intractable problem and his own fear that if these programs persist, he it will be under his presidency that North Korea would have achieved the ability to reach the United States with a nuclear weapon.
President Trump may be faced with that unprecedented situation, a North Korea with nuclear weapons that can reach the United States. But how much power does President Trump have to use American nuclear weapons for more than just deterrence? For the specifics of presidential power when it comes to nuclear weapons, we talked to Peter Fever, who worked for both Presidents Bush and Clinton, and at times on counterproliferation and nuclear arms control. He's also a professor of political science and public policy at Duke. Here's Peter. I'd like to walk through the process of the United States launching a nuclear weapon. Let's start with this. How would this initial decision even get made? What advisors might be involved in that decision making? Well, the president is part of the National Command Authority, which in, by law is also the Secretary of Defense. And his chief principal military advisor is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then, of course, in the White House itself, there's the National Security Advisor, who isn't in the formal chain of command, but is considered the principal foreign policy national security advisor to the president. And then not in the chain of command, and so not necessarily involved in a crisis decision, but certainly in any deliberate decision, would be the secretary of state. And so one of the first questions you ask about going to nuclear war is, is this part of a deliberate process where the team has been working an issue for months, uh, weeks, days, and has reached the position where they believe this is the only option they can pursue? That would be a deliberate process. The other one is the process that is in a crisis where suddenly they get warning that in a few minutes or hours, such and such a country is going to attack the United States, and you have a very short window in which to make a decision. Do you preempt that likely attack with a nuclear attack of your own? So in that second case, it would be something like if we found out that North Korea has just launched a nuclear weapon headed our way, and we wanted to strike first or retaliate immediately, that's the type of situation you're talking about where the decision would be made in this truncated style. Well, if they've already launched the missile, that is too late. <laughs> there, I mean, there <laughs> right. would be a there would be a emergency response meeting about trying to knock down that missile, and of course they would try to knock that down with ballistic missile defense, whatever is available. But the more the familiar crisis, this is from the Soviet days, would be if we got word of a massive attack from where the Soviet Union had launched thousands of missiles enough that they would materially degrade our own capacity to retaliate, then would the president decide to launch under attack or launch on the warning of their attack so as to at least be able to use those weapons before he loses them? But that kind of pressure would not be there with North Korea attack, which only has a handful of weapons, not enough to decapitate or materially degrade the U.S. nuclear arsenal. They could still do tremendous damage if they have the capacity to reach the United States to destroy a city, but the timeline for preempting them would be left of boom, as they say, before they had launched, and we're, we're believing that they might launch, would we attack them? And that would be under a very compressed time, and the president would have a very difficult decision to make. But in either one of those settings, there would still be the chain of command. And, and this is the point that is sometimes lost uh, in the public debate. 
sometimes uh, critics of the president make it sound like he could wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning, see something on Twitter he doesn't like, get angry, and call the strike force and say, launch now, and that order would be immediately implemented. The system is not set up to do that. And certainly he would have to issue that order through the chain of command, and the chain of command would have time to ascertain, well, why is he doing this? and would ask questions about it. And if it was in response to a 3 a.m. angry tweet, I don't think that the, that order would be implemented in the time frame that the critics worry about. Yeah, so let's for a second talk about the situation you just laid out. So he has made this decision that he wants to do this in response to something that has not been deliberated widely by his advisors, just sort of impulsively wants to do this. What actual steps would have to happen for him to be able to do that? You say it has to go through this chain of command. What does that look like specifically? Well, he has to give authentication codes, which are carried around in the football, which is the name given to the briefcase that's carried by the military aide that's always within a prescribed distance uh, from the president. So the person carrying the football would be (laughs) collaborating with the president to uh, make it available to him, and then those orders would pass through the military system down to whatever unit was receiving it. And the Secretary of Defense would be notified that this is what's happening. Uh, if, if this truly is something that's uh, coming out of nowhere with no cause, uh, questions would be asked. And, and so this, the system would not blindly follow this order if there was no rational cause for it. So that's interesting. People raise this question, can anybody stop the president? And the way we've laid it out here, it seems like there's all of these people in the chain of command who actually have to carry out the order that could potentially stop him. It would seem difficult to stop the president, to go against the president's wishes. Have we seen examples of that? Can you disobey the president? Can you raise questions even if he just really wants to see something happen? And can you do it in this short time frame that might be under a lot of pressure? Well, let's be clear. During the Cold War, they worried about would people actually follow the orders in a timely manner or would they second-guess them? And, and so the system practiced and practiced so that they would be able to respond quickly and, and follow a legitimate order if they received it. But the, the system also is in a larger context of the crisis, right? There would be many people in the chain of command who would be alerted to this is transpiring, and those people would have to go along with the order for it to be carried out. It's not an electronic trigger that the president sits on accidentally right, and then right. it, boom, you know, the thing the fires off. There is human beings in the loop who have to make the decision. And so the system has already been primed to respond, already primed to worry. We believe that North Korea might attack us in a couple days, and so now the system has a rationale for it. And then in that context, the president makes a rash decision, or a decision that is would be deemed by history to be rash. In that instance, would the system carry it out? And I think it probably would. Yeah. To belabor this point just a little bit, the Secretary of Defense, he doesn't technically have veto power, though. So even if he questions it or if he thinks it's not the right order, if the president, any president, insists, the Secretary of Defense would essentially have to step down or step aside if he refused to carry out this order that the president adamantly felt he wanted to carry out. Right? Is that a mischaracterization or is, is that accurate? 
Well, it's it, it's a little more complicated than that. So let me give you, uh, a, for instance, um, you remember when Richard Nixon resigned, mm-hmm. and he announced that he was resigning, and then he traveled from the White House to his West Coast uh, home, and he believed that he was going to be the president, and thus with the football, until he arrived at his West Coast home. Uh, And so he thought, when he was traveling uh, out west, that he had the football. Actually, the military aides did not carry the football on with President Nixon to California, but had transferred them to then-Vice President Ford, who was in the process of being sworn in to be president. So the people around Nixon decided that you want your tenure to end in six hours or something, it's going to end six hours earlier than you intended. The system can put constraints on the president. And of course, every president has found that it's very hard to get the bureaucracy to do exactly what they want. Every president has expressed frustration about it. So the idea that the president could wake up, angrily tweet something, and missiles would fly, that's not plausible. Now, if if we do launch a nuclear bomb, is that declaring war by default? Does Congress have to get involved at any point? Well, here's where constitutional scholars debate what ought to be and what likely would be. Obviously, the Constitution reserves the right to declare war, reserves that under Article I powers for Congress, not for the president. But in point of fact, there would not be time to assemble Congress to debate and then pass a declaration of war, probably in either of the two scenarios I was describing. And the Congress hasn't, in fact, declared war in the post-World War II era. The most it's done is authorized the use of force, which it did after 9-11, for instance. And so the idea that we could assemble Congress, have them debate, pass a resolution saying, yes, you may use nuclear weapons, is not plausible. And every national security plan that the U.S. developed in the Cold War presumed that the president would make that decision if it came to it under his Article II powers as commander-in-chief without congressional authorization. Okay, so it's sort of this unwritten presidential norm that a U.S. president will not make the decision to use a nuclear weapon. We've threatened to, but we use them really as a deterrent. How unprecedented would it be I mean, the answer is sort of obvious, but to, to go ahead and use one. I mean, how, how out of the ordinary, how, how, you know, sort of how crazy would it be to use a nuclear weapon at this point? Well, there is precedent, you know, 72 years ago, Hiroshima okay. and Nagasaki. So that's the only time nuclear weapons have been used in anger against an actual target. And over the past 72 years, there's developed this theory that there's actually a nuclear taboo that... Even nuclear states that have nuclear weapons understand that this is a weapon that can be used for threats, but not actually executed. And there's some comfort from that, of course. There's also some strategic scenarios where only a nuclear weapon could get the job done. For instance, if you were trying to take out a hardened nuclear complex in Iran or in North Korea under certain scenarios, then the nuclear weapon might be the only 
ordinance that could actually give a high confidence to destroy that target. But as your question opened, we haven't seen it in 72 years, so it would be quite extraordinary for it to happen. Yeah. So then why does North Korea want to have nuclear weapons so badly? Do they actually want to strike the United States or do they just want to be able to prove that they can and have this power in the world? Well, the one thing that nuclear weapons have proven to be very good at is deterring U.S. military operations. So every country that has had a nuclear arsenal, even if it's had a conflict with the United States, has not been attacked by the United States. And some states that sought nuclear weapons but didn't get them in time were attacked by the United States and, in fact, were toppled. So, paradoxically, one of the lessons that North Korea might have taken from the Iraq and Libya experience, Iraq, which was not yet crossing the nuclear threshold but believed to be on the path, and Libya, which had given up its nuclear program, both of them ended up being attacked by the United States and its allies, and both of those leaders toppled. And so it's likely that the Kim regime in North Korea drew the obvious conclusion, if we have nuclear weapons, we won't be attacked by the United States. And if we give them up, we're at risk of being attacked. So my last question for you, you worked for President Clinton on counterproliferation policy. What's effective in de-escalating these situations? Is there something that the president should be doing now to de-escalate all of this? There is sadly a 30-year bipartisan record of failure in negotiating with North Koreans. The negotiations haven't worked. Uh, sanctions haven't stopped them. Ignoring the problem, the so-called strategic patience approach of President Obama, that hasn't stopped them. What we haven't done is we haven't offered to abandon our South Korea ally and just basically capitulate to what the North Koreans are demanding to see if that works. But no one seriously believes that that would solve the problem. If what President Trump is trying to do is a variant of the strategy that previous administrations tried, which is ratchet up the pressure on North Korea to the point where they decide they might have more to gain from giving up their nuclear weapon than keeping it. But to get to that point, you have to persuade the Chinese to ratchet up the pressure. And because the Chinese have the most leverage, they've been unwilling to do that up until now. This is the rational actor interpretation of what President Trump was doing, that he was trying to rock the boat so much to rattle the Chinese, to worry about that nuclear war might be imminent, that they would respond by ratcheting up the economic pressure as an alternative to war. And then we'd finally test the theory of, could you pressure the North Koreans enough to where they would give it up? That's the best strategic rationale you can offer for the president's rhetoric. And we'll see if it uh, actually works. So Jenna, you spend a lot of time with Trump supporters, a lot of time with Trump's base. Do they want to see him take action against North Korea? Do they support the use of a nuclear weapon? What's the consensus? Well, it depends regionally and group to group. But basically, when I'm out in the country, and lately I've spent a lot of time in the Midwest, I was just in West Virginia, um, up in New Jersey, and basically a lot of the supporters I talk to say that North Korea has been ignored for far too long. And while this is scary and while this is uncomfortable, they're glad that he's 
addressing it, that he's taking it on headfirst, that they really like that. But there's also a worry out there about where is this headed? Where does this go? I'll spend time in military towns, and everyone in town will tell me there seem to be more trucks going onto the base, and it seems like the aircraft is up in the sky more. And what does that mean? Where where are things going? So some have suggested that Trump is engaging with North Korea to distract from other problems that he's facing in his administration so that this would be something that the American people could get behind him. They could support him. Everyone would be unified. Is that what's happening? Well, that's one theory that's out there. I think that a lot of times it's easy to look at Donald Trump's Twitter feed and see this flurry of tweets that don't really make any sense. And for people to say, oh, he's just trying to distract from this other thing. I think that the president has this approach where he just kind of throws everything on the wall and sees what sticks and that it's chaotic. But that's just the nature of it. It's not that he's trying to completely divert attention from one specific thing at one specific time. When it comes to North Korea, I mean, this has been escalating on its own. This has been moving in this direction for a while. And that's something that the Trump administration hasn't had that much control over. So final question to you, which is sort of self-evident here, but can the president lead us to nuclear war? And how worried should we be about that? The president of the United States, no matter who is the president of the United States, has the power to launch a nuclear strike. That is within the power of the president, depending on whatever is going on in the world at the time. But doing that, and I don't even have to say this out loud, but doing that would have such devastating impact and would set off such a chain reaction that it's an action that presidents have to think long and hard about. So while he has that power, the administration has shown no sign of eagerness to jump into a nuclear war. Jenna, thank you so much for coming on the show. You guys can follow Jenna Johnson on Twitter at WPJenna. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. You've been listening to another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks for sticking with us. We will have a new one for you next week. In the meantime, you should go ahead and share this, send it to your friends, send it to your parents, send it to your grandparents. If they can figure out how to listen to a podcast, you have some pretty cool grandparents. And in the meantime, we'll work on something new for you. Thanks, guys. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the intrepid Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That?, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington, Washington, Washington Post. Post.